I'm very grateful for the chance to be able to connect with people worldwide, particularly around the area of self-management, around the area of new ways of doing business, new ways of getting things done. And today we're going to be talking about new ways of different ways of scaling growth in companies, which traditionally we've always thought about it in terms of size and so forth. But this time we're going to start looking at it in terms of impact. So with me today is Susan Basterfield, who I have connected to through the Self-Management Network, Doug Kirkpatrick, Joshua Vile, and the Ensperl community. And the Ensperl community is very much dedicated to doing things that matter on a large scale and rethinking and, and taking a completely different angle on some of the things we take for granted in business. So the timing is super right for that. My name is Donna Jones. This is the Insight to Action podcast. My work is about helping connect decision-making back to caring about people and planet and doing it in a way where greater things can surface from deep within. So it's about tapping into the un- untapped potential that we have in personally and collectively. Susan, welcome to this program. I'm, <laughs> I was just reading your book, Reinventing Scale-Ups, Radical Ideas for, for Growth. And uh, yeah, so let's talk a little bit about what some of the subject you've got in there. Why don't we start, though, first of all, with how did you get pulled into the vortex of, you know, this this whole field? And I, I probably have been living and swimming in this vortex for most of my life. About three and a half years ago, when I finally decided that my impact as a as a human uh, was not going to be fully realized in my traditional roles in leadership in big multinational corporations, I came across this book by a gentleman called Frederick Lalu called Reinventing Organizations. And in that curation, Frederick, you know, as a as a high flying McKinsey consultant, seemed to have landed on the discovery of some wildly diverse organizations in the world that were doing business differently and had a different relationship to work. And the, I guess, three breakthroughs that he defines in terms of self-management wholeness, which is about how do we create the conditions where everybody feels safe and encouraged to bring all of who they are to what they do from a work perspective. And then laterally, the idea of uh, an evolving purpose, um, this kind of recognition that frameworks don't work. There's no examples in the world of uh, one operating system from a cultural perspective being uh, lifted and uh, set down on something else and, and, and it working exactly the same. The idea that just like relationships, the manifestation of the work we do is a combination of the humans that are in the room, uh, what's gone before, their lived experience, their worldview, what they had for breakfast, and that that is changing continually and systemically was something that just really lit me up and, and made me understand that, okay, I'm not really the crazy one sitting in the corner. The assumptions that I've made about work, even through my roles in big organizations, that you know silos were silly, useless things. And if we kept the, the purpose of the work at the center of the decisions we made, we made and the service that we were in, that anything was possible, you know, doing that within the context of a big corporation meant that when that started to bump up against those hierarchies and those entrenched ideas about what work is, it would get shut down, bullied and disregarded was something that, you know, continually was breaking my heart. So I like to say that I'm a slow learner. I finally got there. 
And for the past three and a half years, I've been swimming intentionally in this vortex of what it could be like if we imagined our relationship to work differently. Okay, that's that sums it up rather well. I mean, one of the things that you, you describe yourself as a slow learner, but I think we've got a lot of corporations that are much, much slower. And, and that has everything to do with that attachment to these fixed ideas about what's going on in the world and how the world works. There's this whole other reality that's playing out that's not visible when you believe that the world works according to how it's always worked. It's, uh, it's completely invisible. So, well, let's di- dig a little bit deeper and talk about exactly what is driving a, a rethink and a reinvention of how companies grow. What are those tensions that you're observing and, and have been working with for a while now? I think that over the last 10 years, organizations have been recognizing sort of what I call the, the, the first level of understanding that the stress, the anxiety, the unhappiness, the toxicity of the workplace is something that seems to be growing exponentially, especially in traditional, in traditional workplaces. The idea of everything from the, you know, the concept that you come in and you don't have your own desk anymore where you've got your things and, 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 a, and a place to actually physically express who you are. The idea that you have a hot desk and when you walk in the door in the morning, you put your life in the locker, bring your laptop to your hot desk, do your work and pick up your life on the way out is something that I think is exacerbating. If we look at the interventions that are that big organizations have assumed are going to help address some of these things, programs to build your leadership resilience, build your resilience as as a worker, feels to me like nothing more than a tick box in the in the health and safety in the health and safety compliance. It's not really literally addressing. Um, what's happening to us in, in work and acting like it's something that's manifesting our ability to be able to, at a whim, create happiness, create resilience, but not really changing the underlying dynamics, as you said, of the assumptions that we make about what work is, is just exacerbating the problem. But what's changed for me and what I've seen out in the world is that Thankfully, there are a number of founders and leaders who have this knowing, this internal knowing, creating traditional patriarchal hierarchies is not going to serve their vision and having to figure out how to create the conditions for flourishing in the organization to move beyond traditional table stakes i mean in this in this huge hugely competitive environment of attracting and retaining the talented humans that are going to help the founder's vision be realized is it goes beyond the table stakes of a pool table and beers on a friday it really comes down to this fundamental uh, belief or not that humans are you know, we're capable of organizing our lives. We, we manage to, to feed each other and find a place to live and organize our social lives. But the idea that when we come to work, we need to be told what to do is just, it's just silly. It's just profoundly, profoundly silly. And 
I think the more that's being spoken about the possibility into the world by people like you, Donna, as is as in and Doug Kirkpatrick and Frederick Lalu, so that this other possibility is becoming real. But knowing what to do next and how do you take a book like Reinventing Organizations, that's a curation of organizations that are already doing this, and break it down to some of the practical ideas and steps. I think is really where the opportunity is today. Yeah, no, exactly. This is not a journey you take. It's not a, it, like, it's funny because when, when most people ask for the instructions or directions to how to do something like that, they're expecting some kind of checklist, a, a linear list of, of how things work. And that's definitely not how this plays out. Uh, it does require a higher degree of, of willingness to step into uncertainty. It requires a lot of growth. And it also requires a shift in how you see and perceive things. So what are you observing in terms of mindset for these companies that are embarking on this journey from the get-go and then in the journey of scaling to, you know, scaling differently? What, are you, what kind of mindset falls into that, that path and, and, and gets stretched in the process? And, and also, what do people expect to learn from that journey? It's really difficult to sell emergence. Yeah, it is. It's, it freaks um, people out. It does. It it does. But I but I think that what's been really helpful for me, and especially in the tech space, is working in an agile way is becoming more and more of the norm. So the idea that we can't see what the end product is, you know, even from a software perspective, but we 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 have this kind of still small sense of what it what could be possible. So if we can start small, start iterating, test something, run a couple of experiments, maybe come up with some prototypes, see what fits, see what doesn't fit, maybe use some tools that we can pick up from different areas. But but knowing that what, what is created in our particular environment is going to be absolutely unique to our environment is, I think, the biggest mind shift. I think that, you know, consulting companies have made billions of dollars over the years by selling the process. There is no solid process that's going to have a specific outcome. So the mindset needs to go beyond what Carol Dwink talks about in terms of the, the growth mindset, the area of possibility, the potential that exists within, you know, these containers that we create to allow that emergence to happen. I mean, even just like that, those last few words that I've strung together are really impenetrable. So I'm constantly focused on how do we, how do we, how do we simplify without dumbing down? And how do we bring the obvious to the fore in a way that's safe for founders to try? Because equally, we talk a lot about, about, about creating the safe psychological safety for our, for our teams to be vulnerable with each other and, and not to be afraid to fail. I think that we need to create that 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 psychological safety for the founders to be able to try this as well. The way that I sort of envision, envision it, the metaphor that I hold that's really useful for me is the metaphor of scaffolding. So we are the scaffold tenders. We're there to make sure that the that you know the joints are tight, um, that we are making good strong cups of tea, that we're maybe you know in the tool belt giving the the hammer or the saw and the, or the nails, but it's really the uh, the entity that's creating what it is from within that scaffolding. 
Okay, so let's dig a little bit deeper into the idea of, or, or into the picture that goes with reinventing and scaling, but differently. What are the practical principles that people can use in their decision-making when, when they're actually getting to that stage where they've grown their company to, I don't know, pick a number, but because they, now we're dealing with smaller numbers, but higher value. So uh, what, what are the things that those founders can do as they, as they notice themselves growing and hitting those edges of discomfort, which tell you that you've got to push and grow somewhere? What are the things that people can do, principles they can yeah. apply? And, and I think that, that that number, whatever that number is, is really important. The, the original impulse and the original instantiation of this work in the book reinventing scale, scale ups was really focused on, on startups. So uh, what, what does that look like? And then we, we, we learned really quickly that when you're in that startup phase, really just testing the MVP and seeing if you can build a sustainable business, in reality, most founders don't have time to think about this stuff because there's a small core team that's actually just doing the do, testing the market and creating the company. But when you get to the level of where you are starting to have to think about what it looks like if you decide to have a distributed team or you decide to maybe take on a different product line or you decide to maybe pivot what you're doing currently, that the common idea about, okay, so I as the founder need to go away and serve the source energy. So that means I need to put in a 2IC or a people manager to, to take care of that. This is, this is the old story and this is old thinking. I think the first thing that I encourage founders to do is to decide how you want to decide. Actually, it's funny. I put a section in decision making for dummies called exactly that. Yeah, that that's that's again, you know, one of the one of the most obvious things. But, it, you know, it's it's very clear, you know, and, and I think that a lot of this comes down to safety as well. What I do notice and what I have noticed in founders that I've worked with in scale is is the impulse coming from a level of decision fatigue is the impulse coming from a level of knowing that the people, the humans closest to the work are best placed to make those decisions? Are there particular decisions that I really feel more comfortable still making? And for me, it's more about being transparent about how you are holding the decisions what decisions you feel like you are ready to to disperse or devolve, and then, as you said, principally deciding how you want to decide. You know, is it an advice process? Is it um, some sort of um, integrating decision making methodology? Is it a generative process? Is it a do it and ask for forgiveness later type of process? You know, you you wrote an entire book, and and much of your work is based around how we both psychologically and practically choose how to decide. Yeah, no, exactly. So let's talk about some of those decisions because the startup companies that I've met have a number of different perspectives playing out at the same time. One of them is I've got the funding. I'm under pressure to produce. 
And the easiest way I can do that is to engineer the outcomes the same as I've witnessed or experienced or, or whatever it happens to be. And that's not how it's going to actually work. They, there's also a number of startups that have talked about team. Their CEOs and their founders have said, hey, yeah, we're going to do this on team. This is the culture. And then someone walks into the culture and go, yeah, this isn't even close to what you described. So there's a whole lot of condition setting that is very much derived in your personal evolution and how, who you become as a person and how you navigate these ambiguities and these uncertainties of, of, of running a, a startup. So that's the one, the one dimension to it. Any, any observations you'd care to share on that part of it and how people grapple with that? Because we can tell them, you know, we can give them the tools for distribution. There's a whole lot of things that are easy to, from a tool point of view, to hand out. But then there's this whole business of how do I move through the world and what's my relationship with my power, my personal power, with use of power from an authority point of view? Yeah. Any thoughts on that? Yeah. And you know, one of the things that I didn't want to believe in reinventing organizations is Lulu's assertion that the organization can only develop to the developmental level of the founder. And unfortunately, I have found that to be true. Fortunately or unfortunately, I've found that to play out. So one example, I was in service to a distributed software company about a year and a half ago and saying all the right things, producing, you know, the handbook about how we're going to be self-organized and how all of all of these things play out. But in reality, I found out the hard way that this was a sell by the CEO to the investors that I found this book that shows me exactly how we can scale this company without this layer of middle management. And if we just follow this process, it's going to be perfect. But then what happened was he and the rest of the leadership team were not were not at all willing to to divest their power. They'd come in every couple of months with a decision or something that completely contravened what the culture was saying it was trying to do. And guess what? That that organization doesn't exist anymore. So that's like super interesting. Even in some some of the organizations, smaller organizations in New Zealand, it's it's I've seen that play out. But where I get hope and and feel so enlivened by this work is that I am and I am privileged to work with founders who actually have done the internal work, might have taken five years or eight years or eight months to actually understand that there needs to be this level of equalization. You have to do the internal work as well as the external work. The metaphor I like to use for this is like when you're diving, like equalizing. So when you're scuba diving, you have to make sure that there is a level of equalization between your internal development and what you're trying to manifest externally. And I'm not sure that this is something that one can teach. I feel like I am so over and never want to fall into the position of trying to convince anybody or to convert anybody. However, I really do know beyond the shadow of a doubt that if we stand on our metaphorical mountain playing our Tibetan singing bowls at different frequencies, that people will start to hear. And they're, they're going to start to hear in many different ways. They are going to start to hear from the things that they're reading, the things that they're listening to, the things that their, their colleagues are talking about. And the more storytelling that we can do about the word success almost came out of my, my, my mouth. And I'm not sure that that's not a disingenuous word. The stories about 
the vanguard out there actually trying to do things differently, building the confidence for those that are also sitting with this small, still small sense that it needs to be different is what's going to bring us from this transitional reality into what's next. Also, the thing that gives me peace is that this is not the work of the next five to 10 years. This is the work in the next 50, 100, 200 years, if we survive that long. Because if we look about look at the, 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 the story that we've been telling ourselves about business and about work, it's you know the metaphor of the machine from the Industrial Revolution, where the job of management is to make that machine more efficient. You know, do that in many pleasant ways for many people, but at the end of the day, you are a component in a machine that is absolutely replaceable. One of the things that I found intriguing on your table of content list was the topic, the words value exchange. And with the economic, I mean, from my own observations and conversations I've had, just watching the politics of the day and the new policies rolling out in various countries around the world, there's a, a temptation by a lot of governments to work against their economies. Uh, but just in terms of how they make their decisions. So what that what effect that has is how people get paid, how they feel valued, and what is that exchange? I mean, in the future, work is not going to be the traditional view of trot in, do nine to five. It does call upon something else to 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 emerge here and to to be part of it. What does value exchange mean, and and how does that? Uh, inform what things look like in terms of compensation and, and how people get paid and valued, valued, really valued, as opposed to just getting paid. Because that's the assumption is if we pay them more money, they'll put up with all kinds of pain. But that's not necessarily true. I, I, and I think that there's another layer to this even, uh, Donna, which is the future of work in terms of machine learning and AI and what we know is coming down the pike in terms of how actual jobs and vocation is going to change. And, you know, I feel really lovely about living in the assumption that that some of the traditional jobs that will be most at risk will be those who have those that have been traditionally some of the highest valued in society, like lawyers and accountants and even doctors. But the work that involves a level of empathy that can never be replaced by by the machine, well, at least not for now, at least not in our, our, our current level of understanding of what that means, brings the opportunity for how we value vocational work to change um, from teachers to, to caregivers and, and everything in between. I had the privilege this year of traveling to Finland and meeting with um, ministerial representatives from most of the ministries in the Finnish government and really taking a look at a, a country that has decided that they would uh, explore how value is recognized in that society from from the perspective of the teachers and, and the, the way that the Finnish people hold education to this remarkable thing. So in fin- this is Finland's 100-year anniversary this year. And it's also been the, I think, the Finnish year of the experiment. I'm not sure I've got that language quite right. So I think that the, the Finnish government has made X number of thousands of euros available to anybody who wants to run an experiment about around value or around changing or around you know, um, society or the future of work. 
And um, I was there in October, and I think the weekend before I was there, they had the, the National Day of Failure, which is where they invited the people who had done the experiments to come together, you know, in a very wry, Finnish way, you know, talk about not only what had worked, but also what hadn't worked. And to be able to normalize that in society from a government is like brilliant been a pretty phenomenal right and i think that you know if i think about my practical work that i'm doing on the ground with the organizations that i'm in service of transforming it is normally those organizations that already have a level of empathy in the work that they're trying to do so for example i i serve an organization in western australia called avivo and they are 1200 humans that support people in their homes that have either you know traditionally identified physical disabilities or long-standing mental health challenges or older people that want to stay in their in their homes instead of going to care and the idea that organizing self-organizing into community focused local teams to make the decisions alongside the people that they're caring for in a way that helps to unleash the citizenship potential of the people that they're serving and the development potential of the people that are actually doing that work. You know, I don't know how we got to a point in society where for many of us, we look at people that are caring for others in the community as domestic servants. They are not they are not servants. They are expressing their vocation and their empathy in a way that has value that is equal to that of uh, individuals who choose to go down the, the route of professional education and express their value in that way. And I think that when I'm feeling super energized and generative about this is that the technology is providing the opportunity the way that we are um, enabled to uh, uh, being able to illuminate the possibility for orienting around decision making for ourselves in what we choose to do and aligning that with our individual passion and joy is something that is happening. And that is uh, what gets me up in the morning is is it's not a dream. It's actually happening. It's not happening as broadly as we'd like to see it yet. But the more examples we have that can give the courage for founders and leaders and those individuals with that source inspiration to start to feel safe enough to experiment with this, yeah, it's, I just feel that energy bubbling up inside me. Well, I love the story of Finland because I, I, I just reached out to the IT, the former IT guy in, in Estonia who designed the open government and Finland is, is built on some of that tech. So I'm hoping to have that conversation down the road. I've asked him for an interview because just that whole idea of opening up in Canada, we had our 125th uh, birthday and I think we got a campaign of PR campaign. I'm not quite sure what happened there, but that, that Finland has really got down the idea of innovation to have a failure day is the perfect way to celebrate experimentation. Because not if, if the experiment works every time, it wasn't an experiment. So it's so beautiful, and, and you know, but the the conditions of Finland, I think, are absolutely right for this. They they have such a strong, entrenched sense of community. You know, based on having having to having to do that. You know, they just are absolutely right for for being you know a, a grateful prototype in the world for what could be possible. 
And that, of course, influences, bringing it back to our topic, that, that influences the startup uh, mentality as well and the whole startup culture. And they're known for, for really having strong innovation. You, you've got some really interesting help offered for people that are stepping into this new world of work and stepping into a different role they want to play and also a, who part, a, a new area of who they are. Tell us more about where people can find information. So one place to start is the book. If you're a founder or you're an individual working in an organization that is at that kind of uh, critical point of deciding how um, you're going to grow or scale, I definitely recommend picking up the book. But uh, the other intervention that has been super enlivening for me this year is a project that I've got called the Practical Self-Management Intensive that uh, I run in conjunction with the Leadwise Academy. And this is a, a five-week, hands-on, 10 hours a week experience where every week, the, the, the cohort is normally about 20. It's completely digital. Every week, you will be working with four or five other humans to actually produce a project, both a personal project and a group project, on one of the topics. So topics are decision-making and generosity and autonomy and how we relate to one another, what community looks like. Having the practical experience of actually generating something that you are putting back into this ecosystem, as I said before, you know, how do we start to amplify these messages, gives that practical experience that you can take either into your own personal journey with self-management, bring into your organization. So normally the cohort is a combination of uh, business owners who are at this, at this juncture, academics, uh, consultants, individuals working in organizations, or people just merely interested in this idea of how can I bring myself to my next opportunity of work in a way that honors my autonomy, my personal need to work in community, and being generous and in service to the midwifing of the story that's next. Cool. We'll put a link in the show notes. Anything else you want to add? Before? Another interesting experiment that I've just started with my colleague Joshua Vile is called the Peer Garden. So the Peer Garden is an experiment in you pay by publishing. So this is a place where individuals from all over the world are coming together with the sole intention of publishing something about what they're thinking or noticing about the ecosystem into the world every month. So that's the peergarden.com. If you could link that in the show notes as well, that would be fantastic. I will do that. Yeah, it sounds like something I'd have fun contributing to. Please join us. All right. Th thanks so much, Susan. Really appreciate you being on the thanks, program. Thanks, Donna. See you soon. Scaling companies through adding employees is one way to do it. But as you heard from our conversation today, the other way is to do you use the networks. It's to build on through collaboration, through the self-managed networks, the neural neural networks really that allow for a wider range of collaboration and, and of course with what goes with that will be new new ideas and different ways of coming about doing things. So I hope you enjoyed the program today. My name is Donna Jones, author of Decision Making for Dummies. I have a chapter on deep dynamics in the The Intelligence of the Cosmos by Irvin Laszlo. Just finished doing a chapter for Great Workplace Cultures on how companies create their own costs through stress-related illness and poor workplace cultures. And I have another article on moving successfully to an executive role that's just in the course of being published by Business Expert Press. 
Other than that, uh, you'll find me in organizations doing decision labs and, and really customized work toward helping shift the company state of, of relationships with employees and with their customers from what is, you know, from a more traditional, more traditional way to a much more, a much more flexible approach and, and very values driven approach. So thanks very much for joining me. See you in a couple weeks.